Hello, my friends. Welcome to Let's Talk. My name is Shay Marville. I am the founder of OurMindIsCalm.com. I am an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, a curator, a meditation teacher, and a mom. And I am also going through the wildness of this pandemic. I want to talk about the good things, the hard things, the sad things, and the great things. I want to talk about sustainability, healthcare, work, love, relationships, innovation, and technology. I hope you want to talk about those things too. And I hope that this space becomes a place that lifts us and helps us to think differently, to become stronger, to become more resilient, and to grow so that tomorrow we are stronger and we are better. So let's talk. Sherry, welcome. Welcome to Let's Talk. I have been so excited to talk to you, and especially since we talked yesterday and I heard so many incredible stories about your work in crisis management and the work that you've done with school shootings and and helping people to heal. Thank you for being here. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, I'm just delighted to be able to connect with you, Shay. This has been great. You have just published, or you're just in the process of publishing a new book. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about it. I would love to. It's um, it's something that just came to me in a bolt of lightning. Because, you know, COVID changed everybody's lives. And um, I work with school counselors. And so I just have an open time when people can call in on Tuesday mornings. And sometimes we have 70 people and sometimes we have one. And I listen to what's happening in the field. And I, of course, was hearing like everyone is that counselors and teachers are just exhausted and so unable to reach kids in the way they want to. Mm -hmm. And this time of uncertainty is so, it's just, is it unwinds us. It just makes it so difficult. We can't make plans. We don't have any solid ground from which to move right now, it seemed. And um, I was just uh, in my car and all of a sudden had a lightning bolt that I needed to go write. And in, in 24 hours, I just wrote everything that occurred to me about what it is that's happening for us in terms of how to survive this time. So the first chapter is about hope. It's about remembering that this too shall pass, you know, pandemics as often awful as they are in the moment, all of them at some point, um, you know, change and, and are not that same kind of threat. We may always be dealing with COVID in some way, but it won't always be like this. Mm-hmm. So we have to remember that first so that we can know that even if we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, and of course now with vaccines coming out, we can see that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Yes. And then the next few chapters talk about uncertainty, anxiety, grief and loss, and trauma. And those chapters just give an overview of how it's different with this. For instance, when we talk about the grief, and you know this so well, Mm -hmm. we know what grief is when a loved one dies. We know exactly what we've lost. I mean, it's bigger than what we know, but we know what we've lost. With COVID, we've lost our freedom to gather. And maybe that's okay because we can Zoom, but 
with them. We've lost our traditions for the holidays and maybe we can cope with that, but we've also lost, and it's like that, one little loss after another that mm. together make a tremendous change in our lives and do have grief and do have loss associated with them. But it's so different than any of the kinds of loss that we're used to coping with. So the book is about looking at each chapter gives you some clues or some ideas about if anxiety is an issue for you, here's what you might try. If grief is what's happening for you, here's what might be helpful. And then the last two chapters are probably the most important. And they're about recognizing that when we come out of this into our new normal, what we have done now, the decisions we make now, mm -hmm. the friendships we maintain now are what will be the foundation for our new normal. So it's not like we should wait and see what that new normal is, but be active now, be conscious, be aware. It's, a, it's the role of mindfulness every day to be mindful of what do I want when we come out of this and what am I doing today? Oh, I love this. I, I love this. So because, because, you know, obviously, you know, what you're talking about, this is the experience of so many people right now. So many people are uncomfortable. Like, you know, if you know, say nothing else but the fact that they're just truly uncomfortable and and want to know how to cope with this. Like, what should they be thinking about? So this idea that what you are building right now, that's what your new normal will be. That's powerful. You know, that's come out of going into communities after school shootings and then tsunami in Asia and so on. And looking at that when we're in the midst of the chaos and the coping, if we, if we can have the few people who are helping us be mindful about how we're coping early on, we can avoid so much of the grief later. But if we're not mindful in the moment and we're re reacting instead of responding, then we have even more work ahead of us. And so um, it's really wisdom that I've gained by watching others and by carefully observing how we recover from really devastating events. I'm very curious about how you found yourself uh, focused on the work of helping people heal after school shootings. I'm old. It started in the <laughs> 70s when I was just getting out of, um, you know, just kind of putting my life together and had this unexpected opportunity to become a co-therapist for um, children um, with a, a, an incredibly brilliant therapist who, who trained me and then invited me to co-lead groups. And out of that, I was doing groups in schools and a, a principal came to me one day and said, I have a child who has to be in your group right away um, he witnessed his father's homicide over the weekend mm -hmm. and that was the beginning for me of well what does a child need and I didn't even in those days I was young and it was before we knew much about trauma mm -hmm. so I didn't even get the difference between that he was not only profoundly grieving his father's death but also in trauma so I was feeling my way in the dark with him but I was very committed to serving him and so I started doing many groups with kids who were all, all the kids in the groups were grieving. And from that then, in the 80s began training school crisis response teams. And then in the 90s, realized I'd written a couple of books on crisis response in schools. And in the 90s, realized I needed to write the lockdown, evacuation, relocation, 
reuniting kids with their parents. I needed to write that. So I wrote that and finished it the week that I was called to respond to the shooting at Thurston High School. And that was May of 1998. Oh. And, um, and then 11 months later, Columbine, I just picked up the phone and this gentleman said his name. And he said, I'm in Littleton, Colorado, and we have a building under siege and we can't communicate with them. SWAT team's on the way. What do we need to know? Mm. And of course, we didn't know. He said, we don't know how many of our students may have died. And so we didn't know. But the next day I flew out and then in a couple of more like that. And then I ended up moving to the East Coast and working with the 27 schools that fled Ground Zero after 9-11. And so, and that's just, it was, you know, you know, Shay, here's how it is. There are times when you realize that a door is opening and there's a vacuum on the other side and it's just going to suck you right into that room. It's just going to draw you in. You don't have to do anything. Yes. And all of my path professionally has been like that. I haven't, I didn't go to college and raise my hand and say, I want to do crisis work. I really didn't. No. This just came because of requests and opportunities. How do you hold that space though? I mean, that is an extraordinary amount of pain to be, uh, you know, managing and relating to, you know, year after year? You know, one thing is that I, uh, well, in the late 70s, someone wrote a grant for me to do nothing but art and play therapy with children who were dealing with death. So I had groups of kids who were dying, Mm. groups of kids who had a family member that had already died, and groups of children who um, had a family member that was terminally ill. And I was young, I was in my 20s, and about six months into the grant, I just hit my wall and was so anxious that I totally fell apart, really fell apart emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, physically. I just hit bottom. And uh, my wonderful mentor said, this is great. Um, this is time for us to figure out what you need to do to sustain yourself. And I started, that's when I got very serious about two meditations that I do every morning. Mm. And the other thing to recognize is that I'm not going into a crisis every day. Mm. And when I do go, I'm super clear that this is not my crisis. This is my turn to just shine the light and help others find their way, but I can't do that for them. And I'm really clear about that. So I know that when I'm going, I'm not going to be able to do everything I want to do for them. But I know that it's better if I go than if I don't. Yes. So I accept that. I'm gonna I'm gonna do all I can do and that that always is enough. And that being present, being present for them and with them with with this trauma is what is what they really need. Yeah, I think the hardest part is helping people understand when they want to be trained in this and they want to take notes on their computers. <laughs> <laughs> what, what what do you mean? What do you mean? You know, it's like they, they're, we're, we're in a training and they all want to catch every word that I say. <laughs> and, and the way we work in my trainings is you put your computers at the edge of the room, you won't be needing them. This is not about what you're going to learn cognitively. This is how you are going to be in a small group mm. and you're going to be present for one another in a way that but some of you may be very comfortable with and some may not. But when you go in after a crisis, if you can't put the, the checklist away for a while, and listen to what people need from a place that's very soulful, you're going to miss a lot of opportunities. Mm. Do you get angry? Um, There is a a lot of anger in a lot of rooms that I'm in. I don't get angry because I really know that um, 
all bringing the best of myself is what I can do. And that I think that I've gotten beyond anger into something that's much deeper and it's been kind of um, sandpapered down to something really pure. And it's just an awareness and an understanding of people are led astray. People go astray. People are drawn into a dark place. Mm. And, um, you know, really that awareness is what brought me. I created a social emotional learning program for kids in schools because what I recognize is this is what we need to be doing in kindergarten through fifth grade. I mean, we need to go through all 12 grades, but kids need connection. So what I can know is this is a symptom of what we haven't figured out how to do well yet. Mm. What can I figure out? So no, I don't feel angry when I go in um, almost ever terribly sad, but it's more like I'm riding a surfboard on a roiling wave of chaos. And I can see that there's a horizon out there, but the people in the wave of chaos don't know that they can't see it yet. Yes. So I more know that my job is to continue to report back to them. You have a future. There is a future. There is a new normal to be had. There's a lot of work between here and there. Let's look for what we can begin to do. How does that uh, mindset apply to what we're going through right now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's such a great question, Shay, because... You know, I do have anger in my life right now with COVID and that with the people who are not wearing masks. And it's that sense of um, how have we not reached our whole population with that same place of caring enough to do the basic things that will protect people's lives, even if we don't know those people. Mm. So it's um, that part is one part that really comes home for me. But but all of the lessons I've gained in and the hope I have going into these terrible events and then being able to feel, to know I can have hope because I've seen so many people recover from really, really devastating events. And I know these guys, I still know people from Columbine. I still know people from Thurston, from the earliest shootings I responded to. So I wow. know they put their lives back together. What, what does recovery look like for for some of the people you've you've helped well you know one of the pieces is that we know that the biochemistry of trauma causes most people to be irritable and on edge and easily provoked in the aftermath that's what adrenaline does because you know it's like the mother bear Hmm. adrenaline is really designed for us to be able to rise up and protect our young like a mother bear would and in the aftermath of a shooting that's all been taken care of. And whoever caused that is now incarcerated or, you know, not no longer a threat to us. And yet we have all this adrenaline as though it's going to happen every day. We have this flood of adrenaline in our bodies. So if we can help people understand that when others are cross with you, it isn't about you. It is so not about you. Mm. And that's true with COVID right now. You may notice or others may notice that family members or others have a little less patience at times when you need them to, yes, you know, yes. and that part of that is the adrenaline and it, it leaves us on edge and it leaves us irritable. So the recovery, one part of it is that I can help principals, administrators, those folks anticipate that if we don't work hard, for instance, on staff cohesion, we will have a very divided staff. We will have tremendous anger on the part of parents and staff 
in the, between like two or three or four weeks from now on through the next eight months. And then people begin falling off. People go find a new job or they leave and then you're rebuilding from ground up. So the recovery, if we can bring everyone together really early on mm. and help them recognize how, and here's how I do it. So we, we bring the school community back together, hopefully within 24 hours, and we're all in a huge gymnasium or an auditorium. And my message to them is everyone has every reason to be angry, to be depressed, to be whatever you are. But today, I want us to begin that as a group, our first focus is how do we be here for the children? Not whose fault is this, not do we need new safety measures, not did we need a better barrier at the door. It's what do we do now and recognizing that every single thing you do as a parent either contributes to us getting better or not. But nobody sits in the falcon with that teeter-totter. So when you lambaste the school for not doing good safety measures, your children hear that and have less trust in the school. Mm. Oh, that's right? a good point. Every, everybody has a role in the recovery. That's, that's the point is that I think parents and others think, you know, I hope someone does something. And for them to realize that everything I say has the potential of building a better foundation for our new normal or not. Mm. And, and how, so, so now, I mean, I think we have a lot of teachers and educators around the world who are, who are struggling either to, you know, teach in the classroom without fear or teach online when they weren't used to doing that. But because kids are not, in some areas where kids are going to school, they're not going to school every day. It's not the, the typical school day that they used to have. What would you suggest, like how do they, how should they be thinking about, about this experience? about this moment? The thing I'm the most concerned about is that, you know, we're hearing like recently on the news here, there was a story, not here in Portland, but but here in America, there was a story about a, a teacher, they interviewed a teacher who noted that the usual failure rate in her classes in the past had been between four and 10%, and they're now at 50%. <gasps> and I think what we have to recognize is whether we're teaching in a classroom with the anxiety around whether we're too close or whether we're teaching online, this is not school as we knew it, and we can't use those same measures. Oh. And the thing that's important for me for us to re remember is that, you know, I don't know what grade I was in when I learned long division, but I learned it at some point. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you whether my teacher cared about me in first grade and in second grade, I remember that teacher, and I know whether she built my self-esteem to feel like I was worthy or not, and third grade, and fourth grade. And I think that what we have to recognize now is that we're failing kids, and they're not failing. It's our system that's failing because we've never had to try to teach in this kind of an environment before. And so I think the most important thing for us to recognize is I'm hearing administrators talk about, you know, next year we're going to have to work real hard to get ready for the tests. Hmm. And I think what we need to do is next year we need to work real hard to help kids come back together and find normal relationships again. Find out yes. what is it like to have friendships and play together and do I feel worthy and do I feel afraid of being in school or can I feel comfortable being here? So my focus is going to be on what we do in the social emotional realm. Hmm. 
We can teach a kid long division in seventh grade and he's still going to know it when he's an adult. <laughs> we can teach it to him in third grade and he's going to know it when he's an adult. But if we obliterate their self-esteem for a year, mm. problems. That's so profound. That's so profound because I, I rarely hear that kind of conversation about, you know, I think I hear a lot about mental health and our worry about it, but bringing it down to the relationship of self-esteem to learning and that this is a different kind of year, like this is a different kind of period. We've never experienced it before. So you're so right. Like, how could we evaluate students at the same level? It's one of the things that uh, that we're looking at is that <clears throat> there are there's something we call evidence-based in schools, which is if you're going to have a program, what's the data on it? What is the track record on it? And on one level, that's great because it means that you know that this program has worked in other schools. But the other part is that it, is it keeps schools from doing something that's really profoundly cutting edge and deeply beautiful and wonderful. So my program, Five Radical Minutes, we were going through the process of getting it evidence-based. And we were in our last year of doing all of that data and research, working with five interns and a professor from um, a school psych program in Washington. And they were doing data on all the kids we had on the program. And now because of COVID, we can't get evidence-based because we lost our data. We didn't do our last, you know, we didn't get the last survey from last year. But what's true is no program that worked before has been tested in this environment. So nothing is evidence-based now. Wow. So so what does that mean? If nothing is evidence-based, then what do we do? So what we do is we start really stopping the, our automatic what do we think success looks like and we become much more observant talk about awareness jay you know this piece being mindful <laughs> this is this is an opportunity for us to recreate education in a way that can be far more effective for far more children this is an opportunity for us to step off the rat race of how are kids doing in high stakes testing Yes, yes. And, and, and how, do you, how do we talk to parents about this? Because, you know, I mean, there was just that scandal. It feels like it was 10 years ago now, but I think it was at the beginning of this year about, you know, those celebrity parents who oh, yeah. were paying for their kids to, to get into elite universities. And, and, you know, this obsession with, you know, you know achievement but not really growing. Um, what does that, like, how is that impacted by what we're going through right now? Like that philosophy of achieve, achieve, achieve. Well, I think, you know, it's the hardest. It's difficult for parents and it's most difficult for parents who really have that as their main focus. If that's more important to them, then is my child happy? Is my child achieving? You know, there are, we have parents with different values and different focuses on what, what they want their children, you know, what they're going to focus on with their child, whether it's achievement, happiness, or something else. But I think what you're touching on is an incredibly important piece. And what I'm telling both parents and teachers is we need to give ourselves a break we need to stop using any measures or expectations we've ever had before because we're going to need to regroup. You know, 
it's kind of like it's kind of like if you always played baseball and you were really good at that, but we only have a soccer field. <laughs> you know, we can get out there and play something. It's just look a little different, and it's going to take some time and some goodwill. Um, and I think that what's going to happen is colleges are going to have to use new markers and new ways of deciding who they're going to admit. And it's not going to be as heavily based on, um, perhaps, I hope, um, some, of the, some of the testing and other things that we've always required. You know, when we listen to kids who aren't doing real well in school, they are some of the children I'm the most fascinated with. They have coped with really difficult things. I mean, think about you walk, I walk into a classroom and there's a kid who's not doing well and I sit down and talk with them and they're talking about that for four months they were homeless and what that was like and that they kept coming to school during that time and where they had to try to sneak in into a bathroom to wash up before they came to school. And yet the other students may not have even been aware of it. Do you think that child is going to achieve as well as the others, you know? And so I think we need to, to this is an opportunity for us to look at the measures we use and the ways we evaluate success for children. Oh, I love that. I love that because it, I, I guess it's also that we had this idea that the paradigm was correct and now the paradigm doesn't work for who we are right now. You know, I loved Peter Senge's work. Um, he came out of MIT and I read his book, I think in the 90s, The, the Fifth Discipline, and um, it was the first time I'd heard someone talk about the fact that our schools were based on, you know, the the um, the early industrial life of needing to teach kids to work on an assembly line and make Fords or, you know, <laughs> create sewing machines or something. And that we still use that assembly line kind of approach for teaching to a greater degree than we realize we have not made the shift that we the shifts in paradigms that we could to really be educating the whole child for our whole complex world. Mm, mm. Wow! Is it, how does your concept of the five radical minutes fit into this new world that that we are all embarking on? You know, it was interesting. Five Radical Minutes, we've just been out about three years and we have about 15,000 kids on the program. And um, and last year we wanted for administrators to be able to see which teachers were using it and, and that sort of thing. So we changed the platform it was on and then COVID hit. And so we also had to change all of the prompts, not all of them, but the whole focus. So, so the program is connecting two kids every day with each other and giving them a prompt where one listens to the other for two minutes and then they trade. If I was listening to you, then you listen to me second. And so that's two minutes and two minutes and the last one minute is what did we have in common? And I don't get to be with you again, Shay, if you're my classmate, I don't get to be with you till I've been with everybody else. So this is not what you do with your best friend in class. It's what the geeky kid does with the homecoming queen <laughs> and the homeless kid does with the jock and and everybody goes with everybody over and over again and it's interesting because what i was looking for is how do we help kids connect with people that are the most different than them in the classroom and find that they have something in common and it's all done kind of with a foundation of kindness and so if i could put the goal of the program in one sentence it's creating an enduring moral compass of kindness in every kid, every day, K-12. 
So that's what the program's about. But then when COVID struck, for instance, how Five Radical Minutes fits in is that now the teacher has, on occasion, questions where the kids examine, how has COVID changed my life? And we might talk about COVID, or we might just talk about needing to wear masks, or we might just talk about because I don't get to be with my friends. So we don't always have to say COVID. But the the prompts got changed so that if a school is in session today, and somebody's diagnosed tonight, and we're all on homebound tomorrow, the program works whether you're online or in school or somewhere in between. So, so what Five Radical Minutes did originally was create a way, a mechanism for kids from kindergarten on to be connecting in a significant mindful way for five minutes every single day. That means 2,500 times in their school lifetime if they used it K-12. So now what it's become is how do we build into those prompts coping skills and an eye for creating the new normal? And so we do talk about coping skills for what do I do when I feel lonely? But then we might in a couple of weeks have a prompt about what I most look forward to, who I most look look forward to hugging when this is over, that sort of thing. And so it's changed our prompts, but what it integrates for teachers is let yourself off the hook, recognize that kids being connected and building relationships will make school easier and better when we get back to whatever our new normal will be. Wow. Do do you think that's something that team members and leaders you know, in a work environment should be doing with one another. It's not just kids doing it. It's it's adults could be doing this as well. You know, we actually talk about that in one of the cha- last chapters of the little book, the, the little book on courage for the <laughs> pandemic. Um, and it talks about what we need to be doing right now for employees and staff people is that we need to create a way that every morning they connect with someone who's kind of got my back for the day. And so if that's, if that's, if that's the two of us, Shay, then we might spend three minutes um, on our phones together or something. And, and we each have a time to talk about, you know, the hardest part for me going into today is, and, and then you might say to me, you know, I've got your back, text me at 10 and let me know how it's going. So I have this one person on my shift today that I'm just texting back and forth a few times to talk about my discomfort or you know something that went much better than I expected and that that more than ever we need management and leadership to be listening to staff and including them in some of the decision making probably the greatest anxiety I was hearing from teachers at the end of the summer was our administrators have been working incredibly long hours incredibly hard to create a system that's going to work for us they're putting in fans and and air systems and all these protocols, but we don't know what they are. And every morning I'm more anxious because it's one day closer and I still don't know what the plan is. Mm -hmm. And that the schools that did the best with that were the ones where the administrators did something like every Friday, they either sent out an email or in some way let staff know, here's what we worked on this week. If you have input, here's how to give it. If we're not getting your input, like call me. And those administrators were the insightful ones. Wow. Wow, that's so interesting. I think that works in families as well, because now we are spending, for some of us, we are spending a very intense period of time with our kids and our partners, right? And and I, I like to sometimes separate things out where it's, 
You know, we just have a conversation that's unrelated to COVID, unrelated to grief, unrelated. Like, it's just like, what would I like about this week? You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, and uh, you told me a story the other day that I just kind of blew me away um, about a gift you received recently. <laughs> which blew me away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was just last Wednesday. And I got a call from someone saying, I've got something to deliver. You're going to love it. I can't tell you who it's from. You'll see what it is when I get there. And I looked out the window at one o'clock on Wednesday and this man pulled up with his wife in a van and unloaded an unbelievably beautiful harp. It's um, for people who are into harp, it's a G31. So it's a Gothic style. It's 31 strings, levers, not pedals. Um, It is something I have wanted for 30 years. But, you know, like the Dalai Lama says, if you cling to your desire, that brings unhappiness. That's the source of our unhappiness. So what I've done for 30 years is I have imagined how much I would love playing a harp. And I've loved the imagining and not clung to the so I have to get one Mm -hmm. because I knew I'd never have one. So I have had 30 years of enjoyment of anticipation of something I never expected. And now here's the deal is that I still don't know. I still don't know who this gift came from. I, I am most mystified because I have not talked about this desire to anyone I can find other than there was one woman I now know since I talked to you, one woman who went to a music camp with me and we were walking by the room where all the harps were and I made the comment, wow, would it ever be wonderful to play a harp? And we kept on walking because I never let myself go in that room at camp. I knew if I played one, I'd want one even worse and then I'd have the, that kind of grasping to I wanted. Yes. And so I, never, I tried out all kinds of instruments every year at music camp, but I never went in the harp room because I thought it would be too hard to leave. And here it is. I, what I say about it is not that I've received a harp, it's that I'm sharing my home <laughs> with with a harp. It's like, um, it's in the center of my living room and kind of the center of my life right now. That is, it's like, that's mystical. A, a gift, you don't know who it's from, and it's something you've always imagined yourself playing wow and that i i my son i said to my son did i ever tell you that i'd love it (laughs) no and i asked my sister have i ever talked to my sister even went to music camp with me one year and why did even talk about it then so i think the super mystical part for me is that someone would do something so grand Mm. without knowing that it was something that was such a heart's love not really desire just imagining for me and and the generosity of it and all, all right now i just keep feeling like it's a gift from the angels because some mm-hmm. angel somewhere had to let someone know this obscure thing <laughs> that i don't think anybody knew and what i love about this is the man said the man that delivered it who's he was the luthier who made it He said, you'll know at some point. And I thought, you know, when I find out, it's going to be like getting a gift all over again. Oh, my goodness. That's the circle of life. I mean, you do such extraordinary and remarkable work being present, 
with the suffering of others in the most earth-shattering moments of their life. And I'm sure there's so many people who want to thank you who have, you know, who, who don't even necessarily know your name because you've impacted their life. I, I'm just grateful that I've had the opportunity to meet you and connect with you and talk to you today. I, I, I think you're an angel, the work that you do and, and the presence and the goodness that you do it with. Um, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. Sherry, thank you. Thank you for being here. And I know we're going to talk again. You know, I know you're going to come back to the, to the pod, but um, I'm really glad our listeners had a chance to, to just, just, get a touch of you, a taste of you. <laughs> well, I think, you know, the, the larger picture here is that, you know, I have my work, you have your work, but I think people don't realize we all play a critical role. We don't just play a role. People play a critical role. You know, you and I wouldn't be doing this podcast if we didn't have someone behind you that is doing the audio. When I go in after a shooting, I can't ask for a gathering of the entire staff, student body, and parents without knowing that there are custodians in that building that I will never meet who are going to set up 2,000 chairs in a sound system. No matter what we're doing, people can recognize what one of us does. And we often forget that the people who are behind us and make it happen are absolutely just as important because it wouldn't happen without them. This has just been an absolute pleasure, Shay. Thank you. Thank you. I am profoundly grateful for your light, your love, your experience, your knowledge, and the generosity of which from which you share all of your work. Uh, I wish you continued success, creativity, and well-being. Friends, thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk. I hope you enjoyed it. We are so grateful for your time. And I want to just thank my amazing team, Stacy Maynard and MCI Studios. We would love to hear from you all. So, subscribe at Shea Marvale Podcast Let's Talk.com and follow us on Instagram at Shea Marvale Podcast. Looking forward to hearing from you. Be well until next time. Bye for now.